You don't have to read much biblical poetry until you find yourself surrounded by metaphors. The Lord is my shepherd. I am the clay. God is the potter. Jesus is the bread of life. The Lord is my rock. Metaphors can be a way an author or a poet crafts a unique way of talking about something. A metaphor is taking one idea, usually something very tangible, something easy to understand, and mapping that idea onto a more abstract experience. So I know what a rock is like. It's sturdy. I've held a rock in my hand. I've had the experience of trying to move a large rock across the field. I've stood on a tall pillar and felt its strength below me. Now I have this other experience that's a lot more abstract. And my abstract experience is feeling that God is ultimately dependable. Map these two experiences onto each other and you get the metaphor, God is my rock. And while most biblical metaphors are easy enough to understand, like that one, we have to remember that every culture develops its own various types of metaphors that will seem strange to another culture. And this is true for those who wrote the Bible. A great example of this is how biblical authors constantly use the image of tumultuous waters to describe any experience of danger, whether it be the unknown, dangerous people, dangerous situations, and even enemy nations. Why is somebody thinking like this? What did it take to produce a poetic imagination that thinks in terms of these images instead of some other images? This episode is part one of a three-part conversations on biblical metaphors that we should be familiar with. But first, we need to have a conversation simply about what metaphors are, how they work, and how you are more saturated with metaphors than you ever imagined. Even how our very understanding of reality is itself metaphor. This is the Bible Project Podcast. Here we go. So we have a series of videos on how to read the Bible. Yes. We had one whole conversation about the art yes. of biblical poetry, the, biblical poetry. the unique styles, techniques, conventions of ancient Hebrew poetry. And we saved for its own topic just because it's so fascinating mm -hmm. and rich. And to me, eye-opening, which is how imagery and metaphor works in biblical poetry, which is similar to uh, most poetry is image-driven language. Yeah. But at least as we'll see, the, uh, the biblical imagination, pun intended, of the imagination uh, How's that a pun? Well, sorry, it's a nerd pun. <laughs> was, well, we're talking about imagery. Uh -huh. The oh, biblical ima image image imagination <laughs> imagination <laughs> to be able to image things for yeah, yeah yeah biblical imagery the biblical imagination yes has its own like encyclopedia mm. that you need to learn how to fill huh. and then draw upon as you're reading. That's uh, interesting. I, I have found over the years of teaching that teaching people what the meaning of these basic images are in the Bible because they're not images that are common to, to modern readers. I almost feel like we need to stop at this point and just talk about what does that mean for metaphors to be basic to our understanding? Yes. Oh, yeah, we will. We will talk totally. about that. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the conversation, yeah, should first go to what are metaphors okay. and how do they work um, and then getting into 
the uniquely biblical. Because right when you say that, imagery. that the the biblical portfolio of metaphors is not yes. is something that we can become aware of, but are not aware of necessarily. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But in everyday life, we do have our own handbag of metaphors yes. that we're yeah. very aware of and we're, may not even be aware that are our metaphors. That's right, yeah. <laughs> we're born into a metaphorical imagination yeah. that we aren't even aware of for the most part until someone draws attention to it. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited about this video and this conversation. I thought, however, as we've been doing uh, with these conversations, is uh, beginning with a reading of a biblical poem. Cool. That I think will be a perfect segue. Give us all the raw materials to mm. work with. Sweet. A reading. <laughs> Great. Yeah? Yeah. Psalm 46. Okay. God is our refuge and protection, found to be a great help in times of distress. Therefore, we won't be afraid when the land shifts, when the mountains totter into the heart of the seas, its waters roar, they churn, mountains quake at its swelling. Selah. Which means? Nobody knows what it means. <laughs> Selah. Selah. It's a Hebrew word yeah. spelled in English letters. Uh, it usually indicates some kind of pause. In this case, there are three selahs that break the poem into three stanzas. Okay. That's just the first one. Stanza two. A river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High God. God is in its midst. It will not totter. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations roar, the kingdoms totter. He raised his voice, the land melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our tall fortress. Selah. <laughs> it's not a call and response thing. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Final stanza. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the land. He makes wars to cease to the end of the land. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the land. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our tall fortress. Selah. Psalm 46. That's Psalm 46. So let's just be coming at this conversation cold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I've been thinking about Psalm 46 for a long time mm -hmm. and then I'm prepping for this conversation. So I have a bunch of stuff on my mind. But mm -hmm. I'm curious when someone comes at Psalm 46 fresh. I have this experience when I read most Psalms, mm -hmm. which is this would be a really thrilling poem if I lived in a time where this kind of stuff mattered to me, <laughs> you know, like, like what? I don't know. Actually, maybe I'm just not using my imagination like war, well enough. Battles? What yeah. do you mean? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, there's earthquakes. I okay. Guess. All there's right. There's still that stuff. All right. Earthquake. There's still nations who are roaring. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, so interesting. So I'm going to take that back. I just am not thinking. Mm. I'm mm -hmm. not. I'm not using enough contextualization in my own <laughs> in my own mind. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of very violent mm. um, images. Yes. Feels very catastrophic. <laughs> to yes. Nations on the brink of melting down. Mm -hmm. 
tottering as it says mm-hmm. yeah nations roaring uh, land shifting mm-hmm. mountains quaking mm-hmm. violent yeah imagery yeah totally i mean that is you know in each of the three st- stanzas there's a core action taking place of quaking earthquaking mm. whether it's in the first stanza it's mountains crumbling into the sea while the pounding surf mm roaring and churns and eats away Mm. it's of like a stormy surf pounding on the rocks yeah and eroding a hillside right it's pretty it's pretty powerful yes yeah okay so there's that the second stanza it's not the waters roaring and he's saying he won't be afraid when there's that yes that's right crazy yes that's right when the waters are pounding at the rock yeah we're not afraid because who is our refuge and protection god yeah. is mm-hmm. for the whole first stanza is of the poet depicting standing on a big piece of rock yeah. surrounded by just a churning ocean churning waters that are eroding and crumbling it to pieces yeah and he's not freaking out hmm. the poet's not afraid yeah why is that well let's consider more in the second stanza instead of waters pounding and roaring and causing erosion, it's the nations mm. roaring. But the nations that are roaring, like the ocean waters, are themselves the thing that are tottering. Mm. Not the Not cliffs. the land anymore. Yeah. And what is the sturdy thing in the second stanza? It's not just a rock now. It's the temple, mm. the holy dwelling places of God Most High. It's where God is right god is in its midst Mm -hmm. and notice what is coming out why is it plural dwelling places yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's called the city of god the dwelling places and then god is in its midst the city that has the dwelling places of god isn't there one dwelling place well there's one building at the central building but then there's the courts and then all those rooms around it Mm. the large courtyards okay the precincts this one of those plural like heavens <laughs> oh yeah plurals of complexity yeah yeah one thing that has all kinds of different components to it i, I could be what's going on here mm. i didn't look up that detail <laughs> N- notice how the two stanzas actually overlap with each other the first yeah. one is yeah i didn't notice that the poet standing on a rock mm-hmm. that is god mm-hmm. while the pounding surf erodes mm. the rock now you realize this overlapped with that is the image of the nations pounding against pounding on the land Jerusalem where the temple is but instead of the rock crumbling it's the kingdoms crumbling when God raises his voice Mm -hmm. and the land melts Mm -hmm. and then there's a refrain midway through the poem here the Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress what do you mean a refrain? Ah. Oh, because it's said twice. Yep. Yeah. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, is the middle line and the final line of the mm-hmm. poem. The third stanza leaves the water and rock imagery. Mm. And it's, behold the works of the Lord who brings an end to all wars by breaking the bow, cutting the spear, overcoming the chariots. What does the word rot mean? <laughs> you rot. I know. Yeah, it's literally the word uh, do or make. Okay. But in English, I just liked it. I think, <laughs> I think it's a King James. It's very part of the King James. It does sound poetic. Yeah. 
the ideas of the Lord is a warrior who brings the end to all wars. Mm. So he overcomes the threat of the pounding waters mm. and the nations, and he does an end to all of their implements of war. And then God speaks in the culmination of the poem, be still and know that I'm God. Mm. I will be exalted among the nations. Mm-hmm exalted in the land, and then the refrain again, the Lord is with us. Hmm. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When you first read the burning the chariots and yes. breaking the bows and cutting spears in two, yeah, I didn't read that in context of ending war. Ah, I kind of just saw it. I just was like, yeah, he's going to fight back or he's fighting. I see. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's like for the purpose of ending the chaos. Yes. making And then be still. And you can imagine like yeah, the stillness right. of the water after that. Yes. Well, exactly. Of the water or of a battlefield. Right. Because the, the, the stillness comes after he makes wars cease throughout yeah. the land. Right. But in the developing imagery of the poem, the nations are the waters. Right. Yeah. The, the chaotic waters is yeah. the battlefield. Yeah. So notice you have three stanzas and think of each of them as a little transparent piece of plastic or something. It's like how Disney used to animate. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And each, so on the first piece of transparency is the, like a small little island rock. Mm. Getting pounded by the surf. Yeah, with the poet standing up there and God's his fortress, but he's freaking out. He's trying not to be afraid because the pounding waves are eroding the rock. And then lay on top of that a picture of Jerusalem. Mm where the nations are attacking Jerusalem, but the temple is there. Yeah. And God is in the midst of mm-hmm. his temple. Mm-hmm. And the nations attack, but then <sighs> melt and totter, <sighs> like yeah. waves recede after mm. attacking. Mm. And then on top of that is an image of God is the one who brings about the tottering of the violent nations so that the calming of the storm, like the calm after a storm on the beach, and the still battlefield after the victory has been won is the image of God victorious over human violence and over creation's violence. And then the poem ends. familiar with that one yeah it's a pretty standard one yeah read the psalms if you've read mostly. any or sung any hymns at yeah. church god is a rock on christ the solid rock i stand yeah. and that's pretty uh, yeah intuitive universal rocks are strong yeah they've been around build a, a house time. on a rock all that kind of stuff yeah yeah they're sturdy sturdy stable mm-hmm. so that's a pretty intuitive image yeah to make sense of but um all this stuff about that one's in my handbag of metaphors. Yeah, you've got that one already. <laughs> but what about the rock being assaulted by the 
waters. That's kind of. Yeah, well, you know, that's interesting because what I have picked up throughout the years of reading the Bible is understanding how important the waters were mm-hmm. as a metaphor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. it took a long time yeah. to begin to see that. Yeah. And actually, the first time mm-hmm. it was brought up to me was I was really tripping out about why isn't there going to be any sea in heaven? Yes, that little line yeah. in the book of Revelation. Yeah, then there's, and there's no more sea. And there's no more sea. And, and I remember I have a bunch of friends who are surfers, mm-hmm. and they're like, <laughs> totally. really, no sea in heaven? Come on. <laughs> totally. And then someone brought up, like, mm. well, look, the the sea mm. represents chaos. Yeah. That was the first time I ever heard that. Yeah. And then you start reading through the Bible and seeing that. Yeah. That's one of those metaphors That's right. that we just don't have in our... Mm-hmm. In our metaphor briefcase. Correct. You notice yep. I keep changing the metaphor for the <laughs> <laughs> Your handbag? For the handbag briefcase. Well, it depends on what job you're going to do that. Right. right. <laughs> my satchel, my metaphor That's satchel. right. So yeah, you got rock, you got waters, you have some holy dwelling place on a mountain with a stream running out of it mm. in the center of this poem. Yeah. That's a metaphor? Is that just... Okay. Oh, that's a good point. But it, it's, sorry, it's an image. It's an image. It's an image here. We're going to need to figure out what to call this video. Is it just metaphor or is it mm. imagery in biblical poetry? Or is it imagery and metaphor in mm. biblical poetry? Because mm. they're, they're a bit different, but they kind of illuminate each other. Huh. We'll go into it. Yeah, for okay. after that. Um, and then the last thing is this image of the, the battle, the stilled battlefield, mm-hmm. where God's victorious over the nations. And then God as a fortress. So there's all these overlapping images. Some of them sound Bible-ish. God's yeah. a rock. There's mm-hmm. a temple involved. You right. know. But this whole thing of the waters assaulting the rock, and the rock is connected to the temple, and there's a battle among the nations. And then the waters and, represent the nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe actually, and that would be, you got to read through the poem a couple times to realize the pounding surf is equivalent to the pounding nations, the roaring surf. That would have been a typical kind of metaphor to have used back then, but the uh, nations were like chaotic waters. Yeah, correct. I think yeah. we're going to see that's a really core biblical image. Yeah. So here's the thing: you could anybody could read this poem in any translation and be like, "Oh, the world's crazy, chaotic waters, nations, God's in control. He's going to bring peace. Yeah. Be still and know that I'm God. I'm thinking I'll write a song about that. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, you, it's a powerful. You, line. Yeah, you get it. You know, you can get it. So the question is not about the basic first reading. The question is about why did this poet bring together these images in this way? Mm -hmm. And what significance is there, this connection of the rock and the waves and the temple and the nations? Yeah. Why is somebody thinking like this? What did it take to produce a poetic imagination that thinks in terms of these images instead of some other images? Like if you were to write Mm -hmm. a poem right now Mm -hmm. about how you find refuge in God in midst of chaos. Sure. Like yeah. What images would you use? That's a great question. And it probably wouldn't, I mean, maybe it would be yeah. a, sto- a stormy coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, if we lived on the Oregon coast. If I lived on the Oregon coast. Yeah. To be honest, living, having grown up, you know, right in the heart of Portland, and I remember the years that I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, mm. uh, going to graduate school. It was a much smaller town, and it was quiet. Mm. It was just quiet. Madison is? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't yeah. imagine that. It's a college yeah. town. It's a college town. I mean, if you go right to the yeah, heart of downtown, but it's not a huge city. Mm. I just remember it's just quiet. Mm. And 
uh, when I moved back to Portland, the contrast was stark to me. There's mm-hmm. always hearing sirens, you're hearing the trains yeah. down in the industrial district. Mm-hmm. The airports of you know, all mm-hmm. the planes that are landing in Portland are flying right over you. Over East Portland. Yeah. And, and traffic and hmm. it's just so the background uh, sorry, noise. I'm just saying in my formative imagination, silence the, one of the main things where my mind goes when I think of stillness oh, yeah. and peace isn't about earthquakes and rocks and waves. <laughs> it's about noise oh, and silence yeah. and solitude. Mm. And I think that's just because as a little kid growing up here, yeah. I was just, there was a constant city background of noise that yeah. I wasn't even aware of until you got until out. Until I it. moved away in my 20s. Yeah. So that's, that's a good, ex- that's an example. Yeah. Your formative imagery for conceiving of the universe. And how could it be otherwise? Right. Right? Your brains. Yeah. Our minds are shaped by our environments, and they sh- they give us the categories to think in. Yeah, the frame of reference. Yeah. So there was a a literary a professor of literary theory. I don't know if he's famous or not. His name's Umberto Eco. That's a cool name. He's Italian. He wrote The Name of the Rose, which is his most famous novel. Mm. Made into a movie. Oh. Anyway. Yeah, profound and obscure. And he developed this phrase, though, called that every literature, whether it's a poet or an author, is working out of what he called an, an encyclopedia of production. That's um, the phrase, encyclopedia That's his of phrase, production. yeah. And actually, every human, but particularly humans that are trying to express themselves through words, mm. are drawing upon what he called an encyclopedia of production. And I like encyclopedia, even though most of... Very nerdy. Almost none of us don't use them. Even have them. A Wikipedia. Yeah, of we have a, the virtual encyclopedias. But the point is that it's this big collected body of reference knowledge mm. that you draw upon to make sense of your world. Yeah. And our brains are constantly stocking, creating an encyclopedia. Mm. And then his whole point was that humans do this individually mm. from the moment. You are out of the womb. You're, mm. you're collecting sense data, <laughs> you know, and having multiple experiences about what's soft, what's hard. You're forming your encyclopedia. And the individual humans do this, and then communities do this, mm-hmm. and then whole cultures do this. And so every culture, uh, when literature is created, draws from its own unique encyclopedia of production. And he calls it encyclopedia of production because it's the encyclopedia mm. by which you produce ideas out of? Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So anytime a, a work of communication is produced, it's You're drawing, drawing from upon that encyclopedia. its cultural encyclopedia. I don't know why I like It's a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I kind of like it. It's just helpful to think every culture has its own. And many cultures overlap certain th- entries in their encyclopedia, like sun, and water, mm, right, right, right. <laughs> and light, and dark, yeah. and life, and death, and but many encyclopedias are full of unique entries based on whether you live in the city or the country, yeah. whether you that kind of thing. So the question is: mm-hmm. first of all, how does a culture and an individual's encyclopedia of imagery get stocked? Mm. How does that get stocked? And how do those images... Which is another great yeah. metaphor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you just made, immediately made me think of stocking <laughs> yeah. trout in a lake. Yeah, t- <laughs> totally. Yeah, how does it get filled? And how do our brains draw upon encyclopedias as we are making sense of the world? Hmm. 
what what role does imagery and metaphor serve yeah in how we make sense of the world mm-hmm. which is kind of the big question you were asking at first right um, is it just a way we dress up and make our language sound pretty yeah is it just something we <laughs> use every once in a while to to really drive home a point yeah yeah or is it something more yeah deeply rooted in our psyche yeah that's right yeah so that's an interesting topic to talk about and i think so let's talk about that and then second in light of that conversation what is the uniquely israelite jewish biblical uh cultural encyclopedia that the biblical poets are constantly drawing upon and writing their poetry out of yeah cool i think a lot about consciousness in the mind and mm-hmm. the one thing that becomes very apparent is how our metaphor for how we even Im- imagine mm. our our mind working has changed mm. over the years oh man I, yes I, as i was thinking about this conversation i thought about that too yeah yeah you go on but i know you know when steam mm-hmm. became a, a, a new invention mm-hmm. and was revolutionizing industry mm-hmm. it became uh, a metaphor for how we start thinking about things. Yes. Uh, pressure and valves and yep. all these things. And the gears are turning. The gears. My gears. Yeah. And so we started yeah. thinking. We started thinking in a metaphor of of steam and gears as to how our psyche works. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you just used a phrase mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. my gears are turning or mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, mm-hmm. let me let me turn on that or let me yeah um, yeah. Uh, or or hot headed maybe even comes from that I don't even know probably yeah. not that might oh, be something that's else interesting. yeah uh, but then when when computers came out sure it became a new metaphor yep. and we started thinking about computation yes and our brains work in terms processing. of processing let me yeah process that and, yep and so they they the way we think about even our own rationality has changed over Correct. the years based yeah. off of technology that's right conceptions of the universe and how it works hmm. you know in terms of uh, the universe as a machine. Mm-hmm. Right. right, operating with gears yeah. by laws. And again, I'm not a science yeah. nerd, yeah. but I know enough to know that once quantum physics got involved, that <laughs> like straightforward gear model of the universe. Right? Just, <laughs> the closer you look, the more it started falling apart. Yeah, it was just you need a different, yeah. a totally different way of explaining it yeah. that's way more um, organic and whatever quantum physics is. So it's mathematical, but it's not gears doesn't work like gears. Hmm. So yeah, those are good examples. The steam the steam engine machine mm-hmm. brain. Yeah. <laughs> versus the computer brain. Right. Those come from two different even from the same culture just at two different time periods. Co- yeah, century later. Um but they're different that creates a different encyclopedia of production. And so, so when somebody writes a poem about how their mind works. Yeah. They're drawing from that. They're going to draw from two different types of encyclopedias. Yeah. <laughs> Two different types and those of aren't, core imagery. Those aren't the only two. I'm just kind of spacing as to what they would have been otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So that that's totally true. And so, I mean, this would be a time to, to bring up Lake Off. Yes, that's right. Like, yeah. Right. So first, just uh, this is interesting. The word metaphor. Okay. It's a Greek word uh-huh. spelled with English letters. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. I never knew that. Metaphora. 
So meta is um, yeah beyond with or it can mean across. Oh, across. Mm-hmm. In some some senses, depending okay. on the context. And then fora is from a Greek word verb pharaoh to carry. Mm. So related to transfer. Oh. Cool. And of course, it's carry to transfer, across. to carry across the associations of one thing and carry them to another, to another thing. Yeah. So th- that's, the, that's the basic idea. You're talking about one thing as if it's another thing. Yeah. To carry the associations, the ideas, usually connected with machines, and you're applying them to the brain. Yeah. So that's it. You're talking about one thing in terms of another thing. Here's what, um, just so just actually so we can have clarity in our conversation. Yeah. This is in the notes here. Metaphor is actually just one kind of a larger c- category of just, you could call them figures of speech. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, or non-literal <laughs> language, though the meaning of literal language is debated. It starts, it's like quantum mechanics. You start looking close enough yeah, totally. and then it all falls apart. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So metaphor is talking about one thing as if it were another. Yeah. My wife's a ball of fire. Right. Whereas the moment I explicitly draw attention to the comparison, my wife is like a ball of fire, then that's called in literary terms a simile. Yeah, that's always seemed kind of a weird distinction. Mm-hmm. Like what's so important of throwing in the word like? Well, it's as if when you in a simile, my wife is like a ball of fire. It's kind of like I'm backing away. Yeah, you're hedging a little bit more. Yeah. So metaphor, what I'm, what I'm metaphor is, really embraces it. Metaphor, that's right. Yeah, it's almost like you're committing to the image more. It's like it, it tells you to suspend your reality. We're going in. Yep, that's right. Simile is kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. we're going in, but don't worry. Yes. Yeah. When I say my wife's like a ball of fire, I'm saying there are some mm. things that my wife and fire have in common. Yeah. Not everything. Yeah. But some things. When I say my wife is a ball of fire, yeah, I'm forcing you. To go through the, like the thought process of being like, well, he can't actually mean that. So, but there are some really important ways mm. that his wife is like fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are they? What could they be? Yeah. But you, it's like you're pitching the ball into the listener's court. Yeah. So other types of speech that are kind of like this is we've talked about these before. Metonymy. Yeah. <laughs> we have. Um, and synecdoche. It's synecdoche. Synecdoche. <laughs> so we have hard. a whole podcast episode where I mispronounce these over and over and over. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So metonymy is you refer to something not by it, but by something it's associated with. So Hollywood produces lots of great films. Yeah. So Hollywood's a place or um, associated with. Can I use your people. wheels? Or no, is that the other one? Uh, oh, yeah, wheels is synecdoche. Yeah. You're using part of a, a thing part of a thing to refer to the whole thing. Um, but also in synecdoche, you can ref- use the whole thing to refer to part of it. So you would say, like, uh, the U.S. won a gold medal in the Olympics, oh, something okay. like that. Yeah. So what you mean is by the whole of U.S. is one particular U.S. citizen. Right, yeah. So part for whole, pull, whole, whole for, for part, part, that's synecdoche. Metonymy is association. Ah, uh, Got it. The pen is mightier than the sword. Yes. So you're not talking about pens and swords. You're talking about war and yeah. communication. Yeah. War versus, yeah, yeah, communication. Yeah, cool. So these are all types of figures of speech. And in all of them, uh, usually you're drawing upon images. Yeah. Verbal pictures, which is why a more basic way to talk about what 
I really want this video to be about is actually imagery in biblical poetry. Mm. Uh, and metaphor is one particular, it's one way to use images, okay. but it's not the only way. Well, that solves that then. You said earlier you weren't sure. But metaphor is also a common enough word that it just sounds, I don't know, which sounds more interesting. <laughs> which would be a video you'd be more interested in? Imagery mm. in biblical poetry or metaphor? I would probably click on metaphor first, but right. exactly. But if I clicked on metaphor and then it was, yeah, metaphor was just part of it, and it was really about imagery, I might get confused. Ah, uh, well, that and that's what I wonder. Like from in our cult, I, I think in our culture, metaphor has come to have a broader meaning, to just mean uh, using images and word pictures and figures of speech hmm. metaphorically. Interesting. Non-literal speech is metaphorical speech. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Using images, okay, instead of. Well, that's fascinating. So I've certainly come across that in, yeah. the, in terms of classroom. and That's how people tend to mean it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's metaphorical. Is that literal or metaphorical? Ah, uh, yeah. And they that don't say literal or symbolic. They say... Uh, yeah. Or, or yes, yeah, symbolic might be used sometimes. So uh, just keep, keep that on the brain as we're talking okay. in terms of what will be an appropriate title. Literally keep it on my brain? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you and I both are interested in the ways that um, brain science mm -hmm. interacts with literature studies here. Right. Um, and the way po yeah, like, poetry and metaphor isn't just... It's doing something to your brain. Correct. Or it's expressing something that our brains are already doing. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, in other words, that metaphors can be a way that an author or a poet crafts a unique way of talking about something yeah so like instead of saying i'm having a hard day and i you know i don't understand what's going on in the politics of our age i write a poem about standing on a rocky island that's being pounded by chaotic surf or something so right like, yeah so that's creating a metaphor but the question is that poem was created by a human uh in this case a human who we believe was inspired by the spirit of god to write this poem and what does that tell us about how that poet sees and makes sense of his world? Right. Not just how he wants to talk pretty about it, yeah. but how does that poet make sense of his world and that our very understanding of reality is itself metaphor. Mm. That's the basic idea here. Yeah. So yeah, you've read the most accessible and popular authors on this, how the brain makes sense of reality mm -hmm. is through metaphor. There's a couple guys, George Lakoff and Mark Turner. Hmm. So when did you come across their work? Is it Turner? The book I've read is Metaphors We Live By. It's yep. Lakoff and uh, um, Johnson. Oh, and Johnson. Okay, got it. Then their other one, which is a little more academic, is More Than Cool Reason, A Field Guide to po Poetic Metaphor. That's George Lakoff and Mark Turner. Yeah. So George Lakoff. Yeah. It's a literary. Literary guy. Literary cognitive theorist. Yeah. Like that. Uh, how did I run into it? I don't know. I think I just saw it on a shelf and I was like, that's a cool title. Yeah. Metaphors We Live By. Metaphors We Live By. Yeah. 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 And then I read it and I was blown away. Me too. Blown away. Yeah. Me too. It's like having somebody 
point out to you that you're wearing glasses <laughs> for the first time. For the first time, yeah, and you had like, no, I I, you had no idea you were ever wearing glasses. <laughs> yeah, totally, that's what it was like for me. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. Highly recommend reading them. Oh, totally. Really, their basic point is a poet can talk about one thing in terms of another, and we call it metaphor. Yeah. My wife's a fireball. But what their whole case is, is that our brains are making sense of complex, unfamiliar experience data constantly. And what they're doing is using pre-existing categories from past experience. That are usually more concrete. They're usually more concrete and familiar. And then as if we project our experience of the past onto this present unfamiliar thing. And, to, we, to and, make sense and I think everyone would say, yeah, yeah. okay, I've, of course I do that. But then they start showing yeah. how embedded it is in, in our conception in of reality. everything. Yeah, that's right. They start unpacking it and yeah. you realize like, holy cow, I didn't realize yeah. all the metaphors I was using yes. to explain things. Yes. So they have a, it's a pretty easy, it's pretty simple. It's kind of like a way to break down what our brains are doing. Mm. They talk about two categories of how we process metaphors and think in metaphors. They use the words a source domain and a target domain. Yeah, this is this is geeky. This is so It's nerdy. so funny, like, yeah. yeah. I would never explain it this way. This you is wouldn't? The, this is the nerdy way to explain it. Maybe I would. Oh, I interesting. Know. Oh, yeah. okay. Got it. Well. This is probably the best way to explain it. <laughs> oh, this is trying to break down. We, is, n- none of us are aware that this is happening. Yeah, you and, have to really... Yeah, but they're trying to recreate yeah. what our brains are doing. Yeah, I love it. It's really fascinating. Your source domain and your source target domain. Source domain and target domain. So this is a quote from, from More Than Cool Reason. We use a metaphor to map certain aspects of a source domain onto a target domain, producing a new understanding of that target domain. This is where, for me, the word map as a verb entered my cultural, my oh. encyclopedia. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was through their work. And it's very helpful Yeah, to think in terms of like uh, on our smartphones, we can do this. In you terms can map of like, something. Yeah, yeah. you can either turn off certain features of your map mm. or turn them on. Mm-hmm. And so if you turn on a certain feature, it's like a layer mm. laying on top of your map that all of a sudden you can show like a grid of Portland, mm-hmm. but then... You can turn on the layer that turns on the satellite images. All, yeah, like the satellite images, or bakeries nearby. <laughs> yeah, or in Google Earth, you know, you can turn on street names, or you turn them off. Oh, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So you use mapping. It's like our brains have already mapped previous experiences, and then we take that map and lay it onto a new experience. Mm. So they use this metaphor of time as a thief. In a me- in the metaphor, time is a thief. Part of the mapping is superimposing our idea of what a thief is. Yeah, actually, a metaphorical understanding of time as a possession. Mm. Oh, right, that would be more basic. Yes, time w- is something you can own. Yeah, time is a possession, and then what we do is carry all of the feelings that we have about our possessions. Yeah, they and can we, be stolen, and we map them onto our experience of time. Yeah. So when I say the word time is a thief, what their point is, there's actually a deeper conceptual metaphor underneath. It's a metaphor. Wait, 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 what? Okay. When I use the phrase time is a thief. Yes. Which one's the more basic? Time is a possession is the most basic. Correct. Okay. Underneath saying time is a thief, which is an interesting figure of speech. Right. Underneath that is a conceptual metaphor that time is a thing you can possess. And we carry all of our 
emotions and feelings about our personal possessions. Yeah. And we map those onto our experience of time. Yeah. And just think of all these phrases. Yeah. I lost time yesterday. Mm. Mm. I gained some time by getting <laughs> to work early. Man, he took up so much of my time yesterday. Mm. Yeah. That experience stole years from me. Yeah, totally. I've got time to spare today. <laughs> I got some spare time. I got some spare time. Yeah. Just like I have spare change. Yeah. Or spare cash. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's So like, the source domain yes. is possessions. Yeah. My stuff. And, and the target domain is my experience of time. Yep. And time is such an abstract thing. Yeah. How do we talk about it? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about it like a possession. Yes. Yeah. Even right. though if you really start to think about it, you don't own time. You don't. It's not your possession. <laughs> Although at all. you do, I mean. But in a way, you have certain degrees you have an of allotment control. Of it. You have an allotment of it. Yeah. Okay. And that's yeah. and so you yeah, know right. when it's gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So what's the closest thing to that? Well, I have an mm-hmm. allotment of cash or mm-hmm. an allotment of things, mm-hmm. and when it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the difference is that there are some possessions that if you choose to, you don't have to give them away. Whereas time, you always have to lose it or give it or spend it. Time has to be spent. Time has to be spent. Yeah. Time is money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could write a poem about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. No, that's a very interesting insight. Time has to, you have to spend your time. You can't save time like you save money. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So here's the interesting question. Is this economic money possession metaphorical conception of time, is this universal to the human experience? Mm. Right. Did ancient Israelites talk this way? Right. Well, it turns out they didn't. Mm. Like you won't find these, ty- oh, these interesting. ways of talking about time yeah. in the Bible. Mm. You won't find them in all kinds of cultures around the world, but you find them in in our culture, at least. So mm. I'm not an expert on this metaphor, <laughs> but it's very interesting. So that's a good example. How would the Bible talk about time? Oh, just differently. Gosh, that's a whole like theme video. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Bible's conception of time. Pretty simple to grasp. You take your experience and all of the f- feelings associated with one core thing and you map them onto some other experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, okay, I found this thing. I, I, there's five metaphors I was thinking mm. should be reimagined. Oh, yeah, good. One is love is, I called it love as a trap. Mm. It's probably a better way to think of it. But oh, people talk about falling f- in love. Yes. And, um, it's something that happened to you. It happens to you. And, and passive. You, and you, yeah, it's very passive. Yeah. You become captivated with someone. Yeah. Captivated with someone. You're yes. like, you're a captive. Yes. Well, mm. I saw a dark side of this mm-hmm. and it made me think like, oh, this, this needs to be reimagined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just talked about time as a possession. Mm-hmm. Time is currency. I'm wasting time. Mm-hmm. My mind as a computer, I think that needs yep. to be reprocessed. Yep. Emotions as a disease. Oh. My emotions flared up. Or my, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, and then um, yeah. my body as a battery, I need to recharge. You know what? Maybe that's mm. a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Because mm. yes. we are very. Okay. So here's the interesting. It's, it's, you can do these like little mental detective stories then. Where so those are little phrases, metaphorical phrases, but the the to apply Lakoff and Turner's it has to really yeah is there actually some deeper core metaphor yeah that that phrase is just one expression of right like time as my possession 
can manifest itself in all of these different ways. I lost time. I gained time. He took mm. my time. I spend time. Yeah. Those are all ways of talking about one core space in my brain, mm. time as a possession. Mm. So the question is, is when I use any given figure of speech, is there actually a deeper yeah. conceptual set of glasses I'm wearing that I'm not even yeah. aware of? Does right it now? weave together to create this tapestry, which is your underlying yep. metaphor? Yeah, that's yeah. right. He brings up some really classic ones like mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And then you have one down here, life is a journey. I like that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first point is that how our brains work is mapping from one set of experiences onto another experience. Okay. Second is they wanted they want to make the distinction between these they call it basic conceptual metaphors. These like deep underlying metaphors that we're not even aware of. Yeah. They want to distinguish those between, uh, from poetic metaphors. Got it. Because those are the ones that are they're generating the poetic metaphors. Correct. Yeah. The basic idea is think of it like to use a metaphor or an image. Think of it like a well that's connected to a deep yeah whatever underground spring underground spring you know someone can draw a bucket down yeah the crack or the well and then bring it up and then do something with that water right and the water comes from the underground spring yeah but they're different yeah then they can make some Gatorade with it but then you make Gatorade <laughs> with it you know or something nobody ever thought of that's right. the basic idea there are basic deep metaphors yeah. that we're not aware of yeah the basic the basic ingredient and what we come across in poetry are like surface manifestations of deeper mm. underlying metaphors right so yeah so they talk about basic conceptual metaphor life is a journey yeah think about how many unique poetic expressions you can come up with and that riff off of that core idea. You can talk about people being lost. Yeah. You can literally be lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, or you can speak about being lost as in terms of not knowing yeah. your vocational direction. Mm-hmm. Having, how to make the next decision. How to in make your life. the next decision. Yeah. You t- when you talk about figuring out the right decision to make, we talk about finding my way. Mm. Jesus. And wisdom literature in the Bible uses these two paths or two roads, mm. images all the time mm. of like the right path and the wrong path. Mm. Narrow is the gate, broad is the road mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. The famous Robert Frost poem, two roads diverged in a wood. Wait, he isn't talking about hiking? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all these you know, biblical proverbs, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So life is a, is a journey. So the deep underlying metaphor that our brains are constantly drawing upon to make sense of day-to-day experience that gives meaning to our choices. We talk about fork in the road mm-hmm. moment, mm-hmm. a metaphor in the road. That's a good example. So like it brings life order. as a journey is the basic one mm-hmm. and it manifests in all these different all these different ways. Turns of phrases, poetic Correct. expressions. That's right. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. They talk about other ones of people or plants. People as plants. I've never heard this one. Are of humans, the way we talk about each other is so much <laughs> with plant language. Oh, okay. So yeah, we talk about kids sprouting. Or uh, actually a more common one is like she went to college, man, she blossomed. She has mm. blossomed. Mm. We offspring, or in in the Bible, the Hebrew word for children is seed, Hmm. human, 
children. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. the same as the name of a what plants mm, grow from. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Seed. Your yeah, you look upon your seed, meaning mm. you look upon your children. Yeah. That's always a weird one when you read it in the Bible. Mm, your yeah, seed. Sure. Yeah. You just don't use that. That's right. Unless you grew up on a farm. <laughs> uh you call kids seed in farmland? Hmm. <laughs> Well, that's a good that's a good point. So people are plants. Some of them have to do with our just experience in the human body. So up is good and down is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is just everything. Yeah. Whatever. I'm feeling down. I'm flying high. Yeah. We use spatial figures mm. of speech constantly mm. to I'm, talk about good versus bad. I'm, yep. Even the word depressed. I'm depressed. Yeah, that's Pressed right. down. Yeah. I'm on top of the world. Top of the world. Yeah, I've got a leg up on this situation. A leg up. That must Fine. come from something else. What does that come from? I don't a know. A leg up. I got a leg up. Like a rock climbing metaphor? I don't know. It's a good <laughs> question. So I think one really interesting one is uh, argument is war. Oh. Did you read that one in Lakoff's? That must that was in Metaphors We Live By. Okay, that's in Metaphors We Live By. Yeah, yeah. So your claims are indefensible. Oh sure. Or he attacked your weak points. Yes. Or his criticism is right on target. Yes. Demolished the argument, won the argument. Okay. So you're talking in all these war metaphors. Man, okay, that's a good example. Also, it's a good example of what does it mean to reimagine. Yes. The, and so I've thought about that this. metaphor. Is, yeah, and I've thought, what can you reimagine it to? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the one I came up with is argument as journey. To go to life as journey, make uh, argument as sure. a journey. Yeah, so sure. like, yeah. I don't know what the phrases would be, but like, uh. let's... You know, together we're walking forward side by side. Mm-hmm. We're clearing a path. Yes. Like that's the metaphor. Yes. And if that's the metaphor, you're not mm-hmm. fighting each other. You're journeying together. Yeah. And I don't know if that'll work. Yeah. But. Yeah. That's interesting. I think the main obstacle to your argument is this. Right. So we might have to clear the path this way. If the logic of your argument works, then it brings you to this goal. Mm. Yeah, where that argument is heading is a it's place heading. I, I wouldn't want to go. Yeah, you took a turn right there in your logic. Yeah, that and I, I guess we do use that sometimes. Faulty. Yeah, we use that language. Yeah, yeah. Be- but but the point is, is that the moment you have on argument as war mm. set of glasses yeah. and you're not aware, you're trying to demolish and fight back. It, it predis- you're trying to hold your ground. Correct. It predisposes you towards a more aggressive. That's what style and that's of the argumentation. Most fascinating thing to me about metaphors mm-hmm. we live by mm-hmm. is not only are they the glasses we see the world through, yes, but then they change the way we live in the world, yeah, yeah, because we're looking at things in a certain way, correct, which then speaks to how powerful reimagining yeah. having a new poetic imagination mm-hmm. can be. You know, yeah, gosh, I was thinking about this. I was. In a conversation with somebody, they were pointing out to me the way that digital capitalism and online commerce is reshaping the way that generations growing up with eBay and Etsy, Mm. it reshapes how they view possessions. Oh, okay. You can get anything in your house in two days? You can get anything, (laughs) and anything in your room can be sold on Craigslist in a matter of minutes. Mm. And so... Uh, They're talking about how the Craigslist, whatever, eBay is, I I don't know how prominent eBay is anymore, but it's a mentality towards your things that's Mm. different. Mm -hmm. And then it begins to shape our life. It's a transient kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah, your possessions are more transient. And then it it has the potential, I don't know how, but it remains to be seen how it will reshape our language about possessions. When you view them as... Thing. You don't buy things, releasing things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you you purchase things to use them for a while until more to your advantage. 
that's an example of a, a set of metaphors towards our possessions that's well, kind that, of waiting to be developed. Yeah, that happens where if mm-hmm. culture changes enough, we start to live in a different reality mm-hmm. in which we don't have a good way to talk about it until mm. we do. Oh, yes. Okay. You know, and then it'll yes. materialize. So I have an example of this in the notes, but I'll, I'll just uh, relay it because it was really interesting. Um, this was about the development of the concept of force fields oh, in okay. modern science. Oh, right. Okay. So, and really, it's the use of the word field. Okay, right. So, so I think it, you mentioned this too. Yeah, me. it was a, a physicist, Faraday. Michael Faraday? Daniel Faraday? It's a really important physicist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the last name Faraday. It says uh, Michael Faraday. Michael yeah, Faraday. totally. Okay. Michael Faraday. There's a whole institute, you know, physics dedicated to this ca- dude. carrying on his legacy. Yeah. So this is mid-1800s. Okay. He's like a pioneering physicist. So he developed the concept of the magnetic field. Okay. So what we're talking about is when a magnet... The, pr- the the effect that a magnet has. Totally. Yeah. When you throw it. A, like a, you know, the classic thing, if you throw a magnet on a table with little pieces of iron around it, yeah. it exerts a force. Yeah. It, or a force or in attraction. Yeah. <laughs> brings certain of those little pieces of iron there's, to stick to it. And there's a real estate around it in which it works. Correct. There is a space around it yeah. where the attraction is strong enough to, to actually move it. Yeah. So the whole point was about what do we call that Yeah, what do we call that space? space? So he developed the metaphor of field, mm. which was used, according to the Oxford English Dictionary at, at the time, to use this an actual Plot of land. Plot of land Yeah, where everything in it is the same thing. It's a cornfield. It's a wheat field. Mm. So it's a field dedicated to a certain thing, Mm. and everything in it's the same. Yeah. And then you can have field as a metaphor of like, of study. Okay. So a field of research, Mm. field of whatever, quantum mechanics. So yeah. So it wasn't that that was always a metaphor. At some point, Faraday was like, Man, there's something we need to talk about, but we don't have yes. a language for it yet. Correct. So, yeah. so he adapted the English word field, yeah. and it actually changed its meaning yeah. because a f- magnetic field is not like a wheat field Yeah. because a wheat field doesn't have more wheat in the middle yeah. <laughs> and less wheat on the outer rings. What I love is that uh-huh. almost all language is that way. Correct. That's right. And yeah. that's, what, I, that's yeah. what I'm always fascinated by yeah. etymology yeah. is because... If you look into it, you'll usually find the basic metaphor behind the word you're, you're using. Correct. And we could yeah. play a little game right now. And we yeah. can just find metaphors <laughs> to cool words. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You can do this all day. That's why I'm reading Lake Off and Turner. But for some reason, I liked this one where it was like he introduced yeah, a great one. the word field and the word actually underwent transformation. And now we use the word force field or a magnetic field as if it is a thing. Mm. And the whole point in this book that I was reading about metaphor was it's not a thing. Hmm. It's just there's a space around magnets. It's the effect. It's... That you can describe mathematically why there's this attraction right. between those and not the other pieces of iron farther So away. it is a thing. Ah, what we're using, we're using the metaphor field right. to describe. A phenomenon. A phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. That happens within a certain degree of space. And we use a metaphor, a field, to talk about that space. Cool. And it reforms the meaning of the word. I think of myself as an explainer is the term I like to use. Yeah. 
what am I? What, what do I do with my life? I like to explain <laughs> things. I'm an explainer. <laughs> yeah. And so I, the, but the word explain has a cool metaphor behind it. Oh, I don't know what it is. Ex out. Uh-huh. Planare. Is la- it's Latin, ex planare. Oh, yeah. And planare is plain. It yeah. actually, before it came to mean to, to explain something the way we think of it, mm-hmm. it meant to basically just like iron out or smooth out mm. like uh, fabric mm. or anything else, explore, uh, like yes, yes. ex planare. Um, or it was also used mm. to explain the blossoming of a flower. Mm-hmm. So you have all these planes mm-hmm. that unfold yes. fold out yeah so it's an unfolding it really mm. means unfold mm. i remember being in uh at multnomah where we both went to school and there was this brand new metaphor everyone was using mm. where they would say in class well let's unpack that <laughs> it's the first time i've ever heard that oh really let's oh. unpack that idea yeah huh. and oh, sure everyone like piece of baggage yeah like we like we had this Luggage. like we had this p- box in front of us yes and we now mm. got to open it up and pull things out. Yes. And yeah. Um, yeah. I'd never heard that before, but I noticed all the smart people used it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, this is an important metaphor. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that's the idea of explaining is, mm-hmm. is you're unpacking, you're unfolding things. Yeah. Seeing yeah. like how it yep. all works. Yes. Because we do have ideas, little packages of ideas that I'll give to you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like every one of our videos yeah, that's is right. like a package of an idea. Yeah, that can be unpacked. Further. Yeah, but then you can unpack it more, yeah, and that's the role of an explainer. Is unpack. Yeah, unpacking it in such yep. a way that you go, "Oh, that's everything in there. Cool. Let's pack yeah. it back up, and now I have that thing." Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> and uh, what are we referring to? We're referring to an idea. We're, yes. We're referring to abstract a, a concept ideas. in our brains. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that we both agree exists in the world and can be unpacked in these ways. I just realized we thought of one in a meeting this morning. Broadcast. Oh, right. Which uh, I think in English originated uh, for scattering seed, a farmer scattering seed. Mm. And then it got adapted as a metaphor for radio, radio, and television, te- television for broadcasting. And all of a sudden this morning we realized we're broadcasters. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's one way to describe the Bible project. We uh, are a media broadcaster. It makes YouTube. us sound really important. Bro- <laughs> Bible project broadcast. Broadcasting, <clears throat> not live. Okay, so this is all pretty intuitive, yes. but it, it's so intuitive we don't stop to think about it. Mm. Okay, so here's the next step. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Project Podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Dan Gummel. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit. We make videos that you can find for free on our website, thebibleproject.com, and on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thebibleproject. These podcast conversations are Tim and I getting prepared to write the scripts for the videos. In the next two episodes, we're going to look at two biblical metaphors that are woven through the entire biblical narrative, but are hard to see with our modern Western eyes. Looking forward to those conversations. Thanks for being a part of this with us.